This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for coming out and for our special guest tonight, Ramona Estiaz, who is the director of the film A Thousand Cuts. Uh, my name is Miguel Pinabella. I'm a PhD candidate here in the Department of Film and Media Studies uh, at UC Santa Barbara. So. Welcome again, Ramona. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, so I have a couple questions to start us off, uh, and then we'll open it to audience questions uh, towards the very end. But I thought to begin uh, just to ask, how did you come to be involved in the making of this film? And if you could talk us through the origins of this project. The origin story. Mm -hmm. um, so I never meant to make a film about Maria, actually. Um, I was finishing my previous film, Motherland, when Duterte became president in 2016. And shortly after he became president, the drug war started. As you heard Patricia um, you know, relate that story in the film. And I'm then on my feed, you know, that social media feed, that uh, my algorithm was showing me all the photos from the drug war. And then they were horrific. And I said, something's happening, what is going on? It felt also very regressive for me because I was, um, uh, I'm a martial law baby. I grew up during martial law in the Philippines. So I felt like, what are we, it was something, we were going back to a dark time, I just felt. So I went back to the Philippines to see if, um, if I could make a film about the drug war. Got to the Philippines, it was 2016, December, and realized, Everyone wanted to make a film about the drug war because it's it's it, it's a perfect film. It's a, you know I hate to say that, but it's tropical gothic film, mm -hmm. right? And um and I don't and it it was also breaking news, and I don't know how to do breaking news. I'm not equipped to do breaking news. I'm not a journalist, so felt like uh, let, let me see if there's something else. There's something else here because I I wanted to make a film about the Philippines during Duterte, that I knew. And so I looked around, talked to people, and then realized Maria Ressa was talking not only about the drug war, she was talking about algorithms and weaponizing social media. Very few people were talking about it then. This was early, 2016, 2017, no one. Very few people were talking about algorithms. And so this intersectionality between the drug war and social media platforms fascinated me. And so one thing led to another and I met her and that's how it started. And I realized she can be the center of the film. But I was also still very drawn to General Bato and Moka Usan because I, I just felt that they added so much context to the film. So it was always going to be an ensemble film until it didn't, until it wasn't because Maria sort of, she tends to hijack, in a good way, the story. And, 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 and the camera loves her, and you know, she's like this perfect documentary subject, in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I, was, I was actually curious. I mean, obviously, Maria Ress is the focus of the film, but as you mentioned, there are many other figures, right? There's uh, the senatorial hopeful, uh, Bato de la Rosa. Uh, there's Moka Usan, who's the influencer turned uh, Duterte campaigner, and then obviously a lot of rappler journalists like Pia Renata, etc. So what drew you to those particular subjects as, you know, potential people for your documentary? 
Well, General Bateau, how can you not be drawn to him? I just felt like, you know, he was like the, the jester, the clown who, who sings on stage during the campaign, but he could kill you, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm going to dance, but I can kill you. And I kind of liked the tension. And he was always, a, and he gave me very early on during the f- filming, he gave me this amazing scene in front of the prisoners, mm-hmm. right? Because he felt like he was flexing his power, and it, to me, it was like this Mussolini-like character, and I couldn't believe we were being allowed to film that. But he was very proud of that moment. And it, 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 and it spoke to the drug war. I mean, it was everything, that scene. And from then on, I'm like, this guy. It, mm-hmm. There's something, you know, I've been doing this so long that you know immediately that when there's something that the, the person can, can give you, and they're willing to be filmed, too. And, and, and Mocha Usan, I was just fascinated. Uh, I, I was fascinated with her. I still am. I mean, her story about her father. Uh, um, I also felt like um, she was a victim of misogyny, right? There was a lot of that. She has a bigger role in the film at some point, but when she was losing her campaign, we sort of lost um, access to her. I'm not supposed to say that as a filmmaker, but we sort of did because she was losing, right? She didn't want to be filmed then. But uh, she, we filmed her, one of the scenes that I really regret not putting in the film um, was about Mocha. Can you talk more about what that scene was? <laughs> so Mocha, you know, she was, um, she had the Mocha girls, right? So we were filming in the club where the Mocha girls were performing. And she was there. You see some of that at the end of the film. You know, she's looking at them perform. Right after that evening, I, th- I remember so well, it was Halloween. And she was leaving the club, and we're still filming her after midnight. And then this uh, uh, street kids, teenagers really, came up to her. And she obviously knew them, right? And she wasn't doing it for the camera. There was something so real. She said, Mocha! And she's like, oh, hi. L- let me uh, treat you to ice cream. Because you... I just knew that's what she always did. They were asking for ice cream. And there was a real familiarity. And then she starts, they start talking about, they were kids of the street, and they were doing everything they could to survive. And so they started talking about sex and drugs. And Mocha was like giving them advice. Like, oh, this is a condom. You know? I mean, it was so amazing. And don't ever do drugs. And it was, but it was real. You felt that we captured something that was not for the camera. They were really there. They knew her. She, obviously, this was a thing that she did with them, like buy them ice cream after midnight. I thought it was really special, but we couldn't find a place for it in the film. It, it was just, it wasn't about the campaign. <laughs> It's so hard to find a place. It was in and out and everywhere in the film until I think the very day when we had to lock picture and we had to take it out. And that, I feel so bad because it was something quite beautiful about very dark, absolutely dark, but something really genuine. And that's what you're looking for as a filmmaker, as a documentary filmmaker. Well, the other big figure, obviously, uh, aside from Maria Ressen and those others, are, is obviously Rodrigo Duterte. Uh, and I was curious because there's a mix of uh, archival and news footage. And I was curious if you had shot any footage with Rodrigo Duterte. I wasn't quite sure which one was shot by you, which one was archival. And what degree of involvement did you get from him? 
So with Duterte, all the rallies were ours. So we were allowed to film him. Um, and he knew we were around. All the footage with Maria, that's all archival. That's all Rappler archival. When he says, you know, I, I shot, I've killed people. Um, he knew we were around. I think, um, I think it, kept, it kept us safer for him to know that we were filming this. He knew what we were filming because we were filming one of his inner circle, which was General Bato. We were backstage with him and everything. Um, so I think he liked knowing what we were doing. And I know, I know for a fact we were surveilled. For sure, because, you know, I talked to his chief of staff and he'd say, so how was the North yesterday? And it was this sort of this power play. And I understand games, right? I, I made a film about Imelda Marcos. So I understand these political games. And, and it's, it's a matter of do you want to play or not, right? So I knew he'd say that to let me know that they knew where we were. We were. But I think us sort of me giving them that information or playing along gave them more security that they knew what we were doing. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I was curious too, the, so the work that you do as a documentary filmmaker is very similar in some ways to the work that Maria Ress is, is doing, right, as a journalist, in that you're both engaged in investigative work, you're, you know, seeking out subjects, uh, analyzing the world, etc. Do you see yourself engaging in a, in a form of journalistic work or what are some of its overlaps and differences with the filmmaking work that you do? I think there's one important overlap. I think um, as a documentary filmmaker, and this is the same with journalists, there's a, there's a contract with the audience that what you're giving them is some kind of truth, that you're not lying, that you're not putting words in people's mouths. I think that's, that, that's sacrosanct, and that's where we really overlap. Um, uh, but I don't see myself as a journalist. I think I get very... First of all, I, I, I don't think... I'm never objective. I don't think I'm ever objective because I work in film, right? Film resists objectivity. I am a director who directs your gaze in a certain way to a character, and I cut it in a certain way. So, no, I'm not objective. And th that we differ. And I think I, I also get very... I get very close to the people I film. I, I become friends with them, and I always root for them. Um, so, yeah, so I think it, it differs in that way. But it also overlaps in a lot of ways. I was curious, too, if you see or what relationship you see between filmmaker and historian or archivist. I think um, it always becomes part of history. That's why we have to be very careful. Right? If journalism is the first draft of history, we're probably second or third draft, right? But it becomes part of the historical record. Like, um, I've made a lot of films in the Philippines. My very first film was Imelda Marcos, and people refer to that. And, you know, historians refer to that in, in classes across this country, which to me is a big responsibility. Because I don't think of that as I make the film. I'm making the film. I'm going to, I'm drawn to characters, so that's what I, that's what moves me, and that's what gets me up in the morning. But I don't think, oh, this is going to be part of history. I only, but only later, I'm like, oh my God, it's going to be, I, so for next time, I'm conscious of it. I have to be, you know, you have to be, there's a certain care that you have to take. But on the other hand, I don't also want to self-censor, 
Because after all, I, I, feel, I still feel it's a piece, it's a film, mm-hmm. right? And people should read it as a film and not history. Although I do understand that it will be taken, you know, they'll read it as history. And I was curious then, what, how do you see political filmmaking in the Philippines? Uh, what direction it's taking and, and, and what direction should it be taking in the future? If you have thoughts on that. No, not really, because I live here, you know. I wish I, I, I wish I could answer that, but um, I don't live in the Philippines. I'm not the right person to address that. Yeah, but um, political filmmaking during the Marcus was very interesting. It flowered. Right, a lot of metaphors because that's mm-hmm. what you do under a oppressive government. You do you make films metaphorically because they don't get it, um, and you can't be that explicit. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, you know Duterte never ever stopped the films about the drug wars, right? Uh, or the, there were two or three films that came out about the drug war. He never stopped it. He never censored it. I think he liked it, which is a weird thing. Right? Because he did admit that he killed people. So what is it to have, like, you know, your precious little war on film? I'm glad you brought up this idea of, you know, filmmakers using different techniques, like metaphors. And I wanted to hear about your filmmaking techniques that you use here in A Thousand Cuts. Um, I mean, one motif that I noticed was how your film cuts often between, like, you know, images of the Rappler team and they have, you know, very humble, very plain kind of offices. And then we get like a cut to these really big, gaudy like rallies that are almost like sporting events. Um, and it creates this interesting tension. And I was wondering if you could talk us through the filmmaking choices that you include in this film that helped you to make certain arguments or whatever commentary you wanted. You make it sound like it's so intentional. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's more intuitive, I think. Um, and, you know, I've worked with the same editor my entire filmmaking career. She's cut all my films. So she's like a very close collaborator. And, um, and you know, I, it's so weird because we don't really think of structure. We don't think of those intentions. What we do is, in a very intuitive way, we, we look at the footage. She watches all the footage. I watch all the footage. Or I know it, right, from having filmed there. And she makes her golden list. I make my golden list. The, the scenes we love. And we go to the scenes we love because if you don't go to the scenes you love, you, you start where you, with the stuff you love. Otherwise, you'll never start editing. You can't start from the beginning because it will overwhelm you with the amount of footage I shoot. We go to the scenes we love and we start cutting them. She starts cutting them. And then we throw it up on the wall. Right? And then after you throw it up on the wall. And so... It's never about plot. It's always about character. It's always about emotion. It's always about behavior. That's what I do. I observe behavior. That, at least that's my definition for a filmmaker. We put it up on the wall, and then we... It's like a puzzle. Then you put it together. And then, depending on... And then you just play with it. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you think this. I'm like, wow, yeah, that's what we meant. I would love to say... But maybe that's what we meant. I don't know, but it worked, right? So sometimes we cut based on pure form, right? Like, an example, we had to cut from Maria in New York. We had to cut back to the Philippines to Bato, right? Because he was praying or something. And Leah cut it in, in terms of the form of them, the composition of the picture. 
Maria was talking and you could see her through the tripod and everything and then it cuts to Bato um, praying and you see him through the grills. So it's the same kind of formal mm -hmm. um, composition and that works too. So sometimes it's that because you have to get from New York back to the Philippines and you cut in that way and people accept it because formally it looks like, yeah, it's, yeah it was made to be that way. Or on sound, right? The silence of Rappler's office and then boom, you're back at, you're at a rally where it's crazy and it's, mm -hmm. it's entertainment and it's spectacle. One of my favorite um, kind of moments in the film actually was when you see a shot of journalist Pia Renata, right? She's talking or uh, asking Duterte a question and then it fades into this like social media post where the clip that uh, is she's basically turned into a meme um, and she's framed by this phrase that says like Pia Renata, Shane by Duterte. And I was curious, there's a risk that anything could potentially be appropriated, right? Uh, or for far right or conspiratorial purposes. Uh, or trolled, um, which obviously you know you, you, you document in this film. How do you address that risk as a filmmaker? The idea that your own work could be repurposed or weaponized. But that actual meme exists as a meme, right? And was created by the uh, Duterte supporters, right? So you're asking from the transition to Pia to the meme, right? That mm -hmm. that transition. So. We talk a lot about that, right? Because everything can be taken out of context. It's online. They can easily download it. If you know how to do it, I mean, it's easy, even if any hacker can do it. But it's, a, it's, see, it's always a choice. Should we self-censor or should we just go with what we feel like is the best storytelling device, right? So I think the storyteller in us, the need to tell the story, like wins, especially in that it wins. But we do, it's a conversation that we never used to have before. It's a, it's a thing. And then with AI, it's even worse. I mean, but nothing we can do now, AI will just, I mean, in a way we're off the hook, right? Because you can do anything with AI. They can create their own thing. They don't even have to steal from me anymore, right? <laughs> I was curious too, again, again, about the trolls and, and you know, be, as a filmmaker, uh, are, there, are there different, is there still the level of risk uh, as, as a journalist like Maria Ressa has, or are the challenges different, right, with, as a filmmaker rather than as a journalist? Like, do you still, do you get those same risks uh, of, of being trolled? What were your experiences like after this film? Um, definitely, I was trolled, but I'm not a big social media person, right? And all my social media assets are very private and shut down. I never do anything public, not, you know, except Twitter maybe. But um, this film, when it came out, then uh, Frontline made um, social media assets for the film, like a Facebook f post for A Thousand Cuts and all that. So it, they trolled the film and not me. And the entire time they were making it, there was a press blackout. So, if, you know, when you get grants, they always want to advertise, right? Blah, 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 I was given a grant. So there was a deal across the board that this film couldn't be talked about until after the premiere. Wow. So, obviously, you know, you, you, you shoot a lot of footage of, of the rallies of uh, Duterte and, and, and Bato and, 
you know, many other political rallies, you know, you see cameo appearances by like Sarah Duterte, like towards the end. Um, the really interesting... And George Clooney, of course. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, in, in, in the Philippines, it's, it's really interesting that there's so, just the multitude of people, right? And I was wondering if you had the chance to speak, right, to any of those just audience members or the people on the street, because I was wondering if, you know, are they there because they're genuinely interested or, or, or supportive of those candidates? Or are they there, you know, because they're thrilled by that spectacle of celebrity? Like, did you get the, the take of, of, of those people on the ground? So there's one person in, um, in the film that sort of, for me, represented what people were thinking. It's the woman who, um, who says that she's not a victim, that her pension even went up. So why should she care about the drug war? And Maria, you know, quotes that famous poem. Um, so to me, she represented most of the people who were... I, you know, because I wanted one representation of the voice, and she was it for me. Because a lot of the people there, especially in the rallies for Duterte, they didn't feel um, affected by the drug war. But why are they there? It's a combination. They, it's a combination of being fed, right? It's a lot of food in the, at those rallies. It's probably the only meal that they too. So th there's that, a uh, combination of their real belief in Duterte and the spectacle. Mm -hmm. But spectacle is always part and parcel of elections in the Philippines, like I've never seen anywhere else. Um, it is my next film, which is a companion film to A Thousand Cuts, is set against the Philippine presidential elections, which is even more spectacular. Because it is like a Las Vegas review every night, you know. <laughs> and it, from every candidate, it doesn't matter. Marcos, Lenny Robredo, the opposition leader... It's spectacular. It, it is incredible. I've never... And I've filmed before, and I've always tried to, I don't know, um, stay away from that, because I, it's hard to explain, but in this next year, we're really leaning into it. It's almost like um, a concert film, but it's elections. So, I mean, you know, big stakes. Uh, you, but that's the form we're taking. You, you kind of gesture towards it a little bit, but, you know, the, the differences between what Philippine politics and elections look like there versus here in the U.S. And versus anywhere. Versus, yeah, and I was wondering yeah. if, if, you could, if you could talk more about, you know, especially for audiences who might not be familiar with what that looks like, how does that, how is the Philippines, you know, differentiated from the rest of the world's politics? Politics like or the campaign? Campaign, yeah. What do they need to know to better understand oh, no. you know, what, what they just saw? So it's a lot of singing and dancing and maybe five minutes of speech without policy. Okay? Because that's what works, right? So the more um, stars and mega stars that you can um, attract you know, to your campaign, the better. Because here you have a longer show with a lot of stars. Um, it's very melodramatic. It's um, it's like teleseria, which is the, like um, like a telenovela. Tele yeah, telenovela. It's like that. So um, candidates sing all the time. Candidates, spouses, and partners sing to the candidates in love song. You know, it's it's that. It's like what people go crazy over. But there's very few. And then some speeches. Lady Sabatol giving a speech. It's like. You better listen to me or I'll kill you. One of these things again, right? But, and then he sings. So that's what it is. Um, Lenny Robredo, the opposition leader, 
tried to put policy in there. She would talk about policy, but you could, you could tell the, the audience just loses interest. So she had to bring it back with, oh, singing and dancing. It, it's, it's really not good. <laughs> but it's always been that way. You know, Duterte did not bring that. I mean, it's always been since... I don't know, since Imelda Marcos, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I've seen Imelda, yeah. and there's plenty of, you know, dancing, singing and, dancing. and dancing, yeah. Uh, so, figures like Bato de la Rosa, Rodrigo Duterte, you know, they, they, they're very, I guess, very generous here, prickly, you know, kind of candidates. They're very, like, rough around the edges. So why, why, what's the appeal uh, of those candidates? What do, you, what, do you, how do you, what do you see as why they appeal to, to their followers? Because they're the macho, right? I mean... It's that, it's that strong, strong man figure. I mean, the reason, I mean, think about it. Duterte admits he killed people, he still won the presidency. There's something about that that is, um, yay, you, you defended the honor. You know, you know, there's still that thing of uh, people getting attracted to strong men. And I mean men, because they're... They're always men, right? The strong men. Um, I mean, Ferdinand Marcos, right? Ferdinand Marcos was accused, the father, the dictator, was accused of um, and found guilty of killing his father's political opponent. He appealed the case. He appealed it. He was the one. He appealed it. Um, and he acted as his own lawyer, as a law student, and got off. It was like he was... <laughs> but that didn't stop him from becoming president. A lot of people thought, hmm, yeah, you should really avenge your father, right? I mean, there is that feeling that that's not a disqualifier. <laughs> I wanted to uh, also get back to uh, Mogo-san, who's, I think, is my, 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 the most interesting character for me. I, I, I mean, I write about her in, in, in my dissertation work, uh, and I, was, I wanted to know your thoughts on her, right? I mean, you get this incredible footage where she gets really vulnerable and talks about, you know, her father being assassinated. I was, yeah, wondering what are your thoughts on her and how, why she was able or how she was able to catapult herself from this kind of internet online figure, minor celebrity, to this incredible position of power. I think it was timing too, you know. Um, but I was drawn to her because I knew there was also that kind of tension Right, I, I knew the reason she supported Duterte, and that story to me was very telling, and I wanted to tell that story because be, behind Moka Usan, the uh, you know the the dancer and entertainer, was this real story, and it was very intentional her support of Duterte. But um, but in a way, she helped Duterte, you know, because she had it. She wasn't a minor. She had a very big um, social media following, mm -hmm. and she brought that, you know, she brought that in, right, when she joined Duterte. So it was, um, I think it was reciprocal and equally so. And you mentioned earlier too, right, so she's kind of on the downswing, right, in terms of influence, maybe. So I was curious too about what, what led to those, those series of events for her. Well, like she lost the election. I think... Um, I think it was the wrong time for her to run. I think she should have waited. Uh, but she was so popular that, you know, sometimes you really believe that you can, I mean, a, you know, a political career is so different from being 
supporting Duterte, right? And I don't think she got the support of the party, of Duterte's party, when she ran. You know, she was always supported by Duterte, but not necessarily his party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, the documentary, obviously, is about the Philippines specifically, and maybe some viewers outside the Philippines, they might see this and think, oh, this would never happen here, right? That's them, not us. No, How- Trump happened here. What are you talking about? Well, that's, yeah, I was going to get to how's this story relevant, right, to people living anywhere in the world. I mean, you bring up... Donald Trump appears, I think, very briefly, right? Like, we don't ever talk about him, but you see the picture yeah, exactly, of yeah. him. Yeah. And that, did, was that like a, a choice on your part? Or yeah. did it just... It was intentional, because I, I love that picture with him and Duterte laughing, haha. But it was intentional to never mention Trump, but to show him with Duterte. What, yeah. what, what do you see as the... Uh, yeah, so for, for, for those who might think, like, oh, very naively, that this would never happen here, what would you say to that point of view? Trump won here. What are you talking about? Right? I mean, again, uh, January 6th happened here, <laughs> right? So it can. It can happen anywhere. Less so here because the institutions are stronger here, right? It can recover easily. Not at, like, in a place like the Philippines, it's harder to recover because the institutions are so weak in places like the Philippines, in the global south. But I was told I can't say global south anymore. But you know what I'm saying. But here, easier to recover because it's such a bigger country, too, and the institutions just can withstand those hits. Yeah. You know, earlier, um, you know, before this uh, event, we were actually talking about your, your, your earlier film, Imelda, which was made... Uh, eight, oh, four. Yeah, two, um, almost two decades yeah. ago. Um, and I was wondering, you know, looking back at it, what, what, what similarities and differences you see between... Uh, somebody like Imelda Marcos and the Marcos administration versus what you were seeing in A Thousand Cuts? It just goes to show that some things change and some things never change, right? I mean, her son is president right now. Um, And I think Duterte enabled that because, oh my God, he would talk about his hero, Marcos, at every turn. And it so normalized the Marcoses. You know, and they had been working toward that anyway. So it's weird to me, especially with this new film, that I'm covering the sun, right? It's like, oh my gosh, I thought we were done with the Marcuses. They were thrown out of the country. Her son is president. So that's something to the national psyche, I think, because there, you know, no one ever went to jail. There was never any consequence for the human rights abuses and the, the money stolen, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And no one talks about that now because he's president. Everything has been, everyone's been co-opted and normalized, and that's, that's, a, that's scary. That's, that's the big shadow, right, that looms over this film in, in light of the election this past year is, uh, right, Bong Bong Marcos and, and the legacy of the Marcos family. Um, I don't remember if, if Bong Bong Marcos ever shows up in this no. film. No, I mean does. She's dancing. Yeah, and, and Sarah Duterte also shows up, of who's, Sarah. who's yeah. current vice president of yeah. the Philippines. Uh, and th- in this film, I think she was still mayor of Davao. Like yeah, she the, was mayor. Yeah. And I was yeah wondering, are there things that you saw when you made this film that could shed light on how we got from Duterte to Marcos again today? On A Thousand Cuts mm-hmm. or Duterte himself, I think, right? Um, that, that kind of 
want to be strong men, right? I think that's what it laid the groundwork for uh, the return of the Marcuses. And like I said, he talked about Marcus like he was, it was a golden age. Once you see, if you start talking about it like it's a golden age, a lot of people believe it and it becomes real. Did you also see, you know, obviously because you were following through with the, the, the most recent election, some of your thoughts and observations during that? For, uh, regarding Marcos? Yeah, the, the, the election of Marcos. Well, Bong never... And I have Sarah to Duterte. admit, uh, well, Sarah, they ran a very disciplined campaign. Very disciplined. And the, really, what they did was they didn't talk, right? <laughs> so the less you heard from them, the less you could really say anything. Bong Bong never, ever participated in any of the debates. And they would always leave a podium up <laughs> to show that he didn't show up. But he won. He won by 15, like 30 million votes, right? 15 million more than his closest um, rival. Um, it was a very... So you could project anything onto him because he didn't say anything, right? He didn't give, give pressers. He didn't allow media to cover his rallies. So who were covering it? The vloggers, right? Mm -hmm. That were friendly toward him. That's it. And there was never any place for the media in his rallies ever. They were not invited. It was really interesting, but it worked. Well, thank you so much, everybody. Uh, thank you again, Ramona Diaz, for joining us. Um... You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.